the Psalmist 34. Of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glorify in the Lord. Let the afflicted <coughs> hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Thank you, Annika, for reading that. Uh, really precious words, right? But let's pray before we get into them. Almighty God and Father, thank you that you have mercy and grace to spare, and we pray that we would receive that this morning. Amen. So Psalm 34, it's a song for the hurting, the troubled, and the broken-hearted. Um, you've heard me mention this before, I think, but uh, do you know of the car park miracle? Um, the car park miracle begins in the morning. Uh, it's where you start, up, start off your morning by waking up on the wrong side of bed. And often, actually, um, it starts with your whole family uh, waking up together on the wrong side of bed in some horrible kind of competition about who, who can be the most unpleasant to the other person. Um, the journey to church was uh, under your own personal rain cloud. But then, wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, you arrive in the church car park and the skies part and the sun shines and you fix this fake Christian smile on your face and suddenly everything is okay. Uh, of course, um, this is the car park miracle. It's not a true miracle. Um, people will ask you, how are you doing? And uh, we respond, 
I'm okay. But sometimes we're not. Sometimes it is just a mask. Um, Sometimes we're hurting. Sometimes we are troubled. Sometimes we're brokenhearted. If that's you this morning, you're in the right place. You're in the right place. You don't need to wear that mask. There's no need for car park miracles. You don't have to feel guilty for feeling that way today. It's okay not to be okay. And this psalm is for you. In fact, it's for all of us. Because even if we are okay today, praise God, we're not always going to be okay. And there are going to be moments where we need this psalm. There are going to be moments when we also are hurting, troubled, broken-hearted. Keep this in your back pocket for when that's the case. The setting for this psalm is um, almost comically tragic. Uh, did you see that uh, in the, uh, the little introduction? We will come back to it, but uh, just briefly. Of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. Um, hmm. We'll come back to that, but this describes one of the lowest and darkest moments in David's entire life. Yet, in that darkness, in those depths, in that lowest of moments, he discovered a unique joy. He discovered that you don't find diamonds on the top of mountains, You find them when you go down deep, in the mud, in the dark. Out of David's anguish, he said, uh, I'll just read the first three verses, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. This is a man in anguish. This is a man in distress. And yet he's going to praise God for what he found in the darkness. More than that, he's going to encourage us in our affliction, in our trouble, in our uh, brokenheartedness to join him in praising God so we can all sing this psalm together. Well, what is the diamond that he found in the depths? I think verse 8 sums it up brilliantly, and that's what we're going to spend our time thinking about this morning. Uh, We'll look at that verse in three parts. First part, although we're starting in the middle, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. It's a funny word, good. Um, One of the kids' leaders out the side They might uh, tell uh, little Johnny to stop running around and be good. And all the while, little Johnny is bouncing off the walls, just wanting to have a good time. In the first case, good means being well-behaved. But in the second case, um, good means bouncing off the walls. Um, So so which is it? What is good? Uh, Then afterwards, little Johnny is going to go back home for a good meal. And, and what does good mean in that case? Does that mean that Johnny's potatoes are particularly upright and moral? Or does that mean that his peas are bouncing off the walls? Actually, possibly. Um, good, in English, has a very broad meaning. But it also has a very broad meaning in Hebrew. Uh, it can describe something that is um, morally right. And, uh, and it does. But it can also describe something that is pleasing to the senses uh, beautiful to the eyes or delightful to the taste or to the, to the hearing. 
And in this psalm, both of those senses of good, both the moral and the delightful, are weaved together. So good is contrasted to evil in verse 14. But also goodness is something to be tasted and seen in verse 8. So what does it mean that the Lord is good? Uh, We might expand uh, this phrase like this. The Lord is morally and delightfully excellent. The Lord is morally and delightfully excellent. And um, let's take a step back for a moment and see what this means throughout the whole of Scripture. Um, For the Lord to be good means that he is exclusively, uniquely Uh, consistently and supremely good. We'll put those four things up on the screen because otherwise I'll forget them. Um, He is exclusively good. In 1 John uh, chapter 1 verse 5, we read that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So God is a sunny day without any clouds. God is a warm day without any cold shadows. Um, He is There are no skeletons in God's closet. He never has an off day where he's just in a bad mood. He is consistently, always, exclusively good. He is good all the time, light with no darkness. And he's uniquely good. Jesus pointed this out when he said, there is no one, uh, no one is good except God alone. Are you a good person? We like to think that we are, but according to Jesus, we're not. Um, Why is that? Well, normally because we're trying to define good according to the sort of rules that we learnt when we were in primary school. Or more likely today, if, if you're steeped in this culture, we might define good as being true to yourself. But that's not the definition of good, Being good is being true to who God is. God's character is the definition of good. He is the standard and the adjudicator of what good means. There is no kind of cosmic offstead to which God has to apply to update his goodness rating. He is good because he is good. He is the one who gets to define it. As long as God is consistently true to who he is, he will always be good. And speaking of being consistent in his goodness, that's the third one. God is consistently good. Um, For us, in excusing our failings, we might say something like the following. Well, I'm a good person. I just sometimes do bad things. There is no such inconsistency in God. Everything he does is consistent with his character. Everything he does is good in line with his good nature. So um, we remember back in Genesis when he was creating the universe and bringing order to everything. After he finished the job, uh, in Genesis 1 we read, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. God saw that the world was very good, not just merely as an act of recognition, but as an act of reflection. He saw that this world, this good world, reflected a good God. And not just, again, not just a 
in, in the moral sense of the word. But the Lord created a world that is beautiful and delightfully pleasing because it has a beautiful and delightfully pleasing creator. So um, when we see and we marvel at a beautiful sunsets with pinks and crystal blues and burning oranges and reds. Like we say, wow, but we can look beyond that and see that behind that is a beautiful, stunning, wow, God creator. He is good. And yes, evil is real too in this world, but that's not a reflection of who God is in his character. Rather, as darkness is the absence of light, so evil is the absence of goodness, the absence of God. Evil, the presence of evil in this world is not a reflection on who God is. Rather, even in this world full of evil, this good God continues to weave his good purposes and turn our evil into his good. We saw that throughout the life of Joseph, didn't we? As we've been looking over the last couple of months, uh, we may intend things to evil, but God intends them for good. He continues to work all things for the good of those who love him. He is consistently good. And finally on this, he is supremely good. Picture for a moment those poor outcast shepherds on a uh, hillside field outside Bethlehem. Surrounded by the darkness of night, they're also surrounded by the darkness of ignorance and evil in this world. And yet, suddenly, a light brighter even than the dawning sun uh, dawns on them. And as they shade their eyes, the angel declared, Fear not. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news is exactly right. The best news of the greatest good. Um, God's goodness doesn't make him run from bad people. Isn't that good? God's goodness doesn't make him run from bad people. Rather, in Jesus he came near to save. And surely this sending of the Son is the supreme example of God's goodness. Um, that's what Paul said to one of his co-workers, Titus, about Jesus coming. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Our God is supremely good. He's exclusively, uniquely, consistently, supremely good. And when we're hurting, when we're troubled, when we're brokenhearted, we need to know this. In those spaces, we're not always thinking rationally. And if we listen to ourselves, we're going to start believing that God isn't good. But actually, when we're in those spaces, when we're hurting, troubled, and brokenhearted, we don't need to listen to ourselves. We need to preach to ourselves. We need to preach to ourselves and remind ourselves of these things that we've just looked at from God's word, that whatever we feel is going on around us, God is good. Evil does not reflect on the character of God, and he is working out all things 
for his good plans. The Lord is good. Let's uh, zoom back in on this psalm and add the second part, or the third part, I guess, of, uh, of this verse. The Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. We're looking at this psalm now and thinking about what God's goodness means for us when we're hurting, when we're troubled, when we're broken. We've already touched on the introduction to this psalm. It points, points back to the events of 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now here, the, the former shepherd boy, the former giant slayer David, uh, the future king, had heard that the current king of Israel, Saul, wants him dead. And on this occasion, it's because David missed dinner two nights in a row. Let that be a warning to you, uh, anyone who uh, works late. Um, so David flees for, uh, for his life, but he's got an empty stomach and he's completely unarmed. So he stops off with, uh, at a friendly priest and um, the priest gives him some consecrated bread from the Lord's presence. And the only weapon that they have in the place, which happens to be... Um, wrapped up the sword that Goliath used in the past. Um, That detail's not especially relevant. I just thought it was kind of cool. Um, Anyway, David is armed and full, and he's looking for refuge. He's looking for somewhere to flee from Saul. Maybe the enemy of his enemy will be his friend. So, he runs to the king of Israel and Saul's greatest enemy, the Philistines. He runs, runs to the court of Abimelech or Achish. Um, apparently he had two names or two titles. Uh, that doesn't particularly matter. But um, yeah, he, he runs there. Um, I guess he really didn't think he had any other option. But would it prove a safe refuge? He arrives at this king's court And immediately, the men of the court recognize David. Not only do they know who he is, but they recognize him for what he is. Um, They see him as the true king of Israel. And they also recognize him as the hero of whom Israel sang. Um, Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his tens of thousands. This is going to be a problem. David is looking for refuge, but the men have recognized him as firstly, the true king of their enemies, and secondly, the one who kills a lot of Philistines. Problem. So what's David going to do? Well, in utter desperation, he pleads insanity. As he's brought before the king, he lets his dribble kind of just go all the way through his beard, and he kind of grabs onto the doorposts and scratches them Um, rather than, um, I don't know what you're supposed to do in the presence of the king. But in any case, the king of the Philistines sees this madman and either thinks, well, this clearly can't be David, or in the other case, if it is David, he's definitely not a threat anymore, uh, and uh, sets him free. So, some refuge. That that wasn't really successful, was it? Um, In utter desperation... What's David going to do now? He's still looking for refuge. He finds a cave. That's the best he could do. Uh, He then finds a forest. He then finds another foreign city. But in utter distress, others start to gather to him. 
actually others in the nation of Israel who are distressed, who are in debt, who are despairing, gather around David, 400 in all. And and from this lowest point, from inside this cave, things start to turn around. Even with no earthly security, it turns out that David has been safe all along. Even with the vengeful King Saul and all his armies hunting him down, David has been safe the whole time. How? This psalm. This whole psalm is a song of thanksgiving for the refuge that is God's goodness. It's an acrostic. So um, each verse of the psalm starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Just look at um, verses four to seven. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Even with all those enemies closing in, David realized that actually he was surrounded by armies of angels all sent to protect him. And then verses 10 to 14, uh, verse 9 to 14. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. From his own experience, David now turns to people like us and and shows us that good doesn't come from fearing our circumstances. Good doesn't come from fearing enemy kings or terrifying deadlines coming up. Good comes when we fear the Lord. Not the sort of fear that makes us run away from God, but the sort of fear that means we'd never dare leave him, the sort of awe and respect that just makes us want to cling on close. And then verse 15 to 22, um, I'm going to fill in the details of this a little bit later, but we get hints of an even greater deliverance to come. God's goodness, what does it mean? It means refuge, Refuge for the hurting, the troubled, and the brokenhearted. This psalm comes from David's experience, but it was sung by all of God's chosen people, Israel. But supremely, it was sung by God's chosen person, Jesus. That's actually a really good rule for reading the psalms. Yes, it's the hymn book of God's son, Israel, but supremely it's the hymn book of God's son Jesus you know Jesus he would have he would have sung this psalm he would have sung all the psalms he had nowhere to lay his head he was a king who was who had his rule rejected he was deserted by his friends he was surrounded by his enemies as he hung on a cross yet when Jesus was hurting troubled and broken-hearted this psalm meant hope for him He knew that he was the righteous one of which David prophesied. 
verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. And verse 19, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Um, This is confirmed uh, when Jesus hung on the cross, as we read in John 19. Um, He had died, and uh, what what would normally happen Uh, when crucifixion was going on, is that the soldiers would go round after a certain time and they would break the legs of the people being crucified. And this would speed up the process of them dying. But in John chapter 19, we read, when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. Though Jesus faced rejection, trouble, and death, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Though he was crushed, he was saved. Though he cried out, he was delivered. Though he carried on him the burden of our sins, he was not ultimately condemned. He rose. So when we are hurting, troubled, and brokenhearted, we need to hold on to this as well. We need to hold on to the fact that Jesus has gone through it. Jesus knows exactly what it is to be in the circumstances that you face. Whatever you are struggling with at the moment, Jesus knows how you feel. And though it is hard, there is such sweet fellowship to be, have, to be had with Jesus when we suffer alongside him. He knows what it is to suffer. He's gone through it, and he's gone through it. Yes, Jesus suffered, but he came out the other side. Like after David's cave, there was a crown. After Jesus' tomb, there was life. And if we're following Jesus, we can be confident that we will follow him through death, through suffering to glory on the other side. We need to hold on to this when we are hurting. God's goodness means refuge for the troubled, the brokenhearted, the hurting. Now, let's finish off this verse, shall we? The Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. We've missed the first bit. Taste and see that the Lord is good. When I was a little bit younger, I loved to read cookbooks. I don't really know why. It's quite a strange thing to love. But I'd sit in the back room of my parents' house, and I'd really enjoy a Sunday afternoon where I'd get a coffee and I'd I'd open a cookbook. And I'd just flick through it and look at all the recipes, look at all the pictures, and I'd um, buy loads of cookbooks and and just flick through them to my heart's content. I'd never cook anything. (laughs) I'd leave that to mum. But I just loved looking through it. It's possible to be a cookbook churchgoer. Maybe you like looking through the Bible. You like reading of God's goodness. But you've never tasted it for yourself. Maybe you can give all the right answers. Maybe you can explain how the presence of evil in this world doesn't reflect on the character of God. Maybe you can 
be anyone in an argument about that, but have you tasted the goodness of God? Have you seen the goodness of God in your life? What does it mean to taste and to see? It means experiencing God's goodness for yourself personally. It means running to him for refuge when you are in trouble. Do you ever feel guilty that you find this life difficult? Do you ever feel like, I, just, I really ought to be stronger. I ought to be able to cope. You feel like you have to be this kind of macho figure that can just step out onto the battlefield and face whatever life throws at you. Um, uh, but the problem with that is that sometimes when we have that attitude, it just becomes too much, doesn't it? Uh, and then because of that, we want to just escape. And so we escape from the battlefield into entertainment, into pornography or alcohol or overeating. We kind of have this wild pendulum swing between foolish strength and foolish escape. Um, and then we know that those things don't really provide any security, but somehow we keep going back to them. And we feel like we ought to be strong. We feel like we ought to be able to just be on the battlefield and win. But God doesn't expect you to be strong all the time. God doesn't expect you to be strong all the time. Sometimes the battlefield is too fierce. And God knows that we need somewhere to hide. We just need to escape in the right direction. All those other things, uh, overeating, alcohol and the like, they are flimsy refuges. We know that, don't we? When it gets too much, we need to run to God. He is a secure place where we can hide, and he is good. He is good. When there is so much evil all around us that just weighs down on us, isn't it such a relief to be able to just flee and fall down on our knees and just weep and say, God, I can't cope, but thank you that you're with me. That's how we taste and see God's goodness. I think practically, we can do this in two ways. Firstly, stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to save yourself. If you're fighting against sin, trying to justify yourself as a good person, trying to justify yourself in the eyes of others, trying to be someone that is okay, it's not going to work. God alone can save. God alone can offer the forgiveness through the cross that justifies. God alone can see you through to an eternity with him. We can't win that battle on our own. We need to flee to God for refuge. Ask him to deliver you. Ask him to save you. Call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. And secondly, stop trying to do it on your own. As Christians, we feel like we should be strong, but we're not. We're not. We need help. We need somewhere to run, and God is that place. Ask him for help daily. 
because you need it. I need it. I certainly need it. God is good. And do you know the beauty of this psalm as we come to a conclusion? If we keep this psalm in our back pocket, it won't only give us comfort when we're in trouble. It won't only help us keep going when we're brokenhearted. It will help us worship and praise when we are in trouble. That's what this is for. David said, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So as a group of broken, troubled, hurting people, let's remind ourselves that God is good and let's praise I really wish we could sing this next song as we finish. God willing, uh, soon we will be able to. Um, to him be the glory. Look and see our God. <laughs>